Good morning. Thank you, sir. It's good to uh, be with you this morning. Hope you are all well and enjoyed this lovely summer weekend. Yeah. So, um, as you're aware, we are in Daniel, and this morning we are going to be looking at Daniel chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, that'd be great. The book of Daniel is is a pretty loaded book. Um, it's interesting because you look at um, you look at this book and you recognize that. With every word, you could pretty much go back or go forward. There is like this beautiful literary dynamic within Daniel where there's so much that captures what was and looks to what is. And um, it's just it's an amazing story and narrative and picture and so to give a chapter justice this morning um, is sorry, pop in there, uh, is a little bit of a challenge, but it is definitely um, a beautiful, beautiful chapter. Um, it's one that you probably are all familiar with in the sense of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. Um, how many of you can remember your flannel graph illustration? Yeah, right? Like it's been done, um, and we remember it very well because of those illustrations. So, um, which is not my characteristic, but this morning I actually have a little bit of a, of a PowerPoint um, to kind of capture the illustrative nature of this story. So, as we've been um, going through Daniel, one of the dynamics, uh, or one of the pieces that DJ shared with us as he um, kind of walked us through and prepared us for this series in Daniel was uh, give us a theme for the message series which is found in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And that is, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And so this verse for, these two verses for us capture the essence of what we see in this passage of the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and God. And that's really what this story is about. It is Nebuchadnezzar and God. And who do we want to follow? Who do we want to see as the ultimate authority? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're very key in the story. But it's actually not about them. It really is about God. And how he is interacting with Nebuchadnezzar. How he is sustaining in his character the relationship that he desires with his people, Israel. So, we begin chapter 3 by somewhat picking off from chapter 2. We don't really know how much time has elapsed. But if you remember from last week in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this statue 
And it was gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. And it kind of worked down this statue. And it talked about the kingdoms and the reign. And so naturally, Nebuchadnezzar, he gets to this place where he's like, oh, well, I'm the head of that statue in that dream. And so the thought is that he kind of reflects on this. He takes Daniel's interpretation. And it doesn't lead him to a place of necessarily worshiping God in his lifestyle. But it kind of gets in his head that, hey, that's pretty cool. I'm the head of this statue. And so what does he do in chapter 3 but decides to create a golden image for everybody to worship? It's not completely illogical if you actually think about the dynamic of it. Um, so think about Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of this empire, the Babylonian empire. And here he is. He is a conqueror. He's, you know, just within the past couple years or so, conquered Jerusalem. He has taken over new lands, new territory, new people groups. And so a big part of staying in power is being able to convince everybody underneath you that they shouldn't rebel or shouldn't, like, uh, argue or try to break off and be their own people. And so you need a level of unity in being a part of the empire. And so as he's like taking over these nations and these countries and these people groups and these language, people of different languages, they still embody their own cultures. They still embody their own native <laughs> lands and areas. And although they do you know, exile people and try and move everybody around, confuse them and, and mix it up, there's still this need to enculturate, that's a word, uh, the whole group of people, right? And just really get everybody on board with being a follower of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he's actually being a very good leader in some respects in the sense that he's like, I need something that's going to unify the people. I need something that's going to establish my authority in all the nations. He has this dream. He's probably thinking this way. Put two and two together. Now we have this gold statue. And he puts this statue up in the, the plains of Dora. And to this day, there is still, there is actually a platform, a, a brick foundation that is out there in the middle of the plains that is likely where this statue was built. And, and he doesn't just build a statue of what he had in his dream. He builds a statue that is all gold. Because Nebuchadnezzar has had so much success in his military accomplishments and adventures that he has faced people groups and their gods over and over again and succeeded. And so we got to keep that in mind even as we hear this story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because Nebuchadnezzar has already in some respects defeated the God of the Israelites because he has conquered Jerusalem. And you know that just like any other nation, 
Jerusalem would have cried out to God, to Yahweh, to protect them. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand why God allowed him to conquer Jerusalem. He just thinks he's really great. And so, when we get into the narrative, when we get into the interactions between Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, keep that in mind. That when Nebuchadnezzar interacts with them, there isn't a God that he has faced and not been victorious. There isn't a God that he has faced that he would say deserves more respect than him. Now, he has had moments, right? Even in um, Daniel's interpretation, right? He does give acknowledgement to the God of the Israelites being <coughs> someone of importance. But if you look, he never actually identifies Yahweh as his God. And in this chapter, we're going to see he still will not give acknowledgement of Yahweh as the God. So that kind of sets the stage a little bit of where we're at. Chapter, the beginning of chapter 3 and the first seven verses talks about the building of this statue. And this statue, here's your, your uh, flannel graph throwbacks a little bit. Um, this statue may have looked like a human, may have looked like King Herod, we don't really know. Um, but it was something that was designed to bring unity to the empire. It was 90 feet 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. So that's about as tall as an 8-story building, if you think about it. That's how tall this statue was. Because he wanted what they worship to be impressive, right? He wanted it to look like something that deserved worship. Wanted it to look like something that demanded their authority. And he calls all of his political leaders, his satraps, his perfects, satraps would be like the governors of the, of the era, perfects would be your military leaders. He calls the governors, which are more like civil administrators, and um, all of their advisors. That's who he calls. And interestingly enough, he doesn't, call, he doesn't tell them why he, he sends for them all. He just says, you all need to come to Babylon. You all need to come to the plains of Dura. And then when they all arrive, he informs them. When you hear the music, when you hear the lyre and the orchestra play, you need to bow down and you need to worship this idol. Again, not illogical, right? Like there's something pretty smart about that. Because if you're trying to convince everybody to worship your God and they all have their own gods, if you were to put out that decree, there's a good chance you're going to have a lot more people kicking back and not showing up, and a lot more to manage in terms of disobedience in the kingdom, than if you say, hey, you all need to come for an important message. All right, we'll come, we'll listen, right? And then they get there. Oh, and by the way, you have to worship this, and if you don't, I'm going to burn you alive. Okay, thank you. All right, got the message, right? He doesn't mess it up. And so we have this scene. 
They're worshiping. Music is playing. I mean, he's <laughs> smart, right? He doesn't just say, bow down and worship this. He creates music. He actually creates this whole atmosphere to pull them in, to bring them to a place where they actually might believe that this statue has authority, this statue has supernatural presence and power. He plays on their senses. He plays on creating an environment and an atmosphere that promotes a positive experience in who they are. But as we know, the story doesn't end there. It keeps going. And so I want to read for us from Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to read part of the story between Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Starting at verse 8. It says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, with in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And here, it's really interesting. Nebuchadnezzar is furious, right, at the report. But then he gets into this place where he act, like he doesn't just believe the Chaldeans. He actually gives these the Jews this opportunity, these three guys, an opportunity to speak for themselves. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. So he actually is giving them this like second chance, basically, like, okay. This is what you have done. This is the report. We're going to wait when the orchestra plays. If you want to prove to me that these guys are wrong, okay. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Right there, right? There's that statement. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Because, see, Nebuchadnezzar has he's been up against other guys. And he is one. So frankly, like, who's actually more powerful than him at this point? To him? Nobody. And he doesn't go quite as far as declaring himself as a god, necessarily. But that, it's just like, he's like maybe the greatest guy. He's the greatest man. He is the ultimate authority. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. It's pretty confident. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. 
But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. They make that point because it, it, it highlights the passion of the moment. Usually, you would be burned um, naked. You wouldn't have all your clothes on. There was no, like, we don't even care. Like, we're not even going to take the minute to strip you down. We are just binding you, and we are throwing you in the furnace. The passion, the, the rage is captured in that description. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. I'm going to stop there for now. So we have the Chaldeans, they come and they accuse the Jews. In preparing, I was reading, and one of the scholars kind of made this observation that, like, just thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their decision, the posture, we don't know. So this is all kind of hypothetical, just kind of like a perspective. But with all of the requirements and all the demands on the political leaders under Nebuchadnezzar to be present and to worship this, and with the expectation that if you don't, you will be burned alive, it's hard to believe that the, these three men didn't think that they would be caught or found out at some point. And so the observation was that their choice was neither really hidden, but nor was it public. It just was. And there's something that I think was just caught my attention there in, in terms of walking out obedience with God doesn't happen in reaction to culture. It happens in relationship with God. And when obedience happens in relationship with God, then we just do. We just take that next step. We just make sure that we're in alignment with God. We don't over-exaggerate and make something public, but we also don't get real secretive and real distrustful of others. So there's this like integrity, I think, that comes when it just is. When it's not about defining or being defined by the culture around me, but it's no, my actions, my lifestyle is first and foremost determined by my relationship with God. And so I walk in obedience with God, despite what's going on out here. And, and from that moment, we just we see the commitment 
to the relationship, the commitment to serve God and walk with him. So, as would be the case, right, when Nebuchadnezzar hears this, he becomes furious. He gets angry. And for me, the climax of chapter 3 is this very verse, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply, verse 16. And they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Just the like, I mean, there is no wavering, right? Like, he just gave them this opportunity to backtrack. I mean, that is the moment, right? Whenever you have a tough decision before you, the anxiety, the tension, the, like, discomfort of having to make a tough choice always happens until the choice is made. And once the choice is made, all right, well, then you know how to walk it out. It might be tough. It might be hard. But the tension, the angst of making the decision is over. And it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar, like, he offers this to him, and it just twists, you know, and it makes the tension, it makes the moment even more tense. And Nebuchadnezzar and the, the three of them, they just, they cut the tension <laughs> and they just say, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We have made up our minds. Our heart is set. We are resolute in who we are going to serve. Just the amazing testimony, the faithfulness, the obedience of these three men to walk out their relationship with God. The other point here is that they walk in this way, and they say to him, our God is able, but if not, we still so there's this idea and there's this understanding that Sharak, Meshach, and Abednego, they know the Old Testament law. They know that they shall not bow down to any other God, right? Ten Commandments. That they know. So they're going to be faithful to that which they have heard, which God has spoken. And so they stand there and they say, we will not do that. But we know because they'll know the history of, of Israelites coming out of Egypt. They know the history of taking over, taking um, the success in the promised land. They know God's character. And so they say, he is a God who can save us from your hand. But we do not know his will. And so we don't know. Maybe he won't save us from the fiery furnace. But he is still good. So often, for us, I think there's that temptation to say God is good, but I want to know that God will rescue me. God will save me from whatever struggle I'm going through. And, and it's a really hard thing to say, even though I don't know God's will in this moment, in this trial, in this tribulation I'm going through, I'm still going to walk in obedience. I'm still going to be faithful in my service to the Lord. I remember uh, probably uh, six, 
eight years ago, um, more than that, maybe over ten years ago, um, when I was a youth pastor at Coventry, we would do these weekend retreats, and there was this one weekend retreat in particular, and I, I don't actually know, I don't re recall, this is probably like, you know, when you go through a tough time and you want to block it out, so I don't remember <laughs> exactly what I was struggling with at that time, but I know that God was just working in me, and um, really working at, like, softening my heart, and getting my heart to not be swayed by the feeling of, like, come rescue me, God, as opposed to be, like, walk in faithfulness, and God will be with me, you know? And so it was just a time in my life where I was kind of, like, learning um, how to walk in relationship with God. And this particular weekend, um, you know, it was just like, I'm wrestling with that. And... There's this teenage boy in the group who, a little bit, be a couple weeks before the weekend, had started flirting with this girl in our group as well. And so they were kind of like going back and forth, and they would flirt on and off, and we're being all cute, and I'm just like watching this over the weeks. I'm like, oh, this is great. Yeah. Um, and so now we're at this weekend retreat, and here they are spending like 48 hours together. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. Um, and something happened, I don't know what, but she flipped and wanted nothing to do with him all weekend. And she was kind of flirting with some other boys who were there, and nothing real inappropriate, but just normal teenage high school, like, flirting. And here I am, watching this go down, and I'm watching this guy, and this teenage kid who, like, as far as I know, hadn't had a girlfriend before. He, this was kind of like his first like real interest. And he's just, he's good. And he's like, this hurts, you know? Like this is really tough. But he was just like, but God is good. All weekend long. And like stuff would happen and I would see it and I'd be like, hey man, like what's going on, you okay? And he'd be like, he's like, yeah. He's like, I get it. You know, like it's feelings, it's emotions. And I'm like listening to him and I'm like, I'm losing it. Like, he's like, you know, he's like sad, he's like bummed or whatever. But I'm like crying because I'm like, how can you, you know? And, and, and just like in that moment, like God used him in my life because like the pride of my heart was that like, I didn't want to face whatever I didn't like about myself in that moment. But God showed me through this kid how to go through like a struggle of being hurt in relationship and still trust God. And, and this kid never doubted himself <coughs> in that moment. At least not in our conversations. It didn't come across that way. He still knew he was loved by God. He still knew that God was with him. He trusted God that if this is how this is going to be, that it's not what he wanted. And, and in that way, like, I just learned so much. And, in fact, we got home on that Sunday, and we had a Sunday evening service, and um, we show up to it, and um, just to attend and this kid's there, and um, a speaker who uh, was Scott Major that night ends up having um, end up having a brain.
years of like right before the service started, and so like the whole service starts off with this uh, with this with him being rushed up to the hospital, and so we were like we prayed for him, and but then there was nobody there to actually speak, so everybody was like, Josh, go say something. I was like, no, you don't want me to do that, and ended up just being able to give a testimony about this kid and what happened that weekend, and just like lost it, and really got to be like brought to this place of brokenness in my own spirit. And and when I read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's this temptation to say, yeah, but that's like this big like pomp and circumstance story, right? Like, who builds a golden image anymore and asks us to bow down to it? That's not realistic. And I could be like, well, yeah, sure, it's a big situation. Like, that's a big deal, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're, like, they're facing certain death. Of course they would have the courage to, like, stand up, you know? Because it's in the scriptures. God wouldn't write it uh, any other way, right? But when I remember, like, my own heart, and when I think about what I go through, what my life experiences are, then all of a sudden, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look a lot more human to me. And I see that they actually, like, it's not the situation or the circumstance they're in, but it's their heart. It's their commitment. It's their passion. And that, that's humbling. To see someone wholeheartedly walk in obedience to God, it brings us to our knees. Because there's something holy about worshiping God. There's something beautiful about walking in faithfulness with God. And it's not about a person, and it's not about what they did. It wasn't about that kid that weekend. It was about what God was doing and revealing about who he was. And that I, in that moment, by the grace of God, chose humility, or was confronted with having to be humbled, you know, and saw God in that moment. And so this isn't, for me, I don't see this as being about the faith and the, the strength of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even though they, they had that. I see it as about these three guys trusting in their Yahweh. And that Yahweh was so present in this moment for them that they could do what they did. They could stay in a posture of they could stay in alignment with God. And in doing so, they become the source. They become the clay that God molds into the story of how faithful he is. We know they get thrown into the furnace. Well, actually... So this, so um, 
tell my wife I was saying this, but you think about it, yeah. Uh, the, the ampersand, the and sign there. Um, my wife is very into ampersands. She likes them. She's she likes fonts and things like that. And it all became because of this verse, which is in Daniel. Um, it's in Daniel 18 there. But if not, and in case, and if not, he is still good. And this is a um, yeah, a portrait we have on our wall at our home. And it's something that like I, when I look at it, it just reminds me, right? No matter what situation I'm in, no matter where I'm at, whatever I feel that might not match with who God is, I, I look at that and I can say, you know, and if not, you are still good. You are still good. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they um, get thrown in the furnace. The men who throw them in die, but they don't. And the things that bind them get burned off, but their clothes, hair, none of that gets burned or singed or even smells of smoke. And in the Septuagint, it highlights a verse that um, we don't have in our Protestant scriptures. And that, um, it says that, um, you know, when Nebuchadnezzar, Verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, because they are his counselors, so why would they disagree with him? Um, he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And so here Nebuchadnezzar tells us, What's in there? What, who's the fourth person? Well, he looks like the son of a god. Right? So it's likely the son of God. In the Septuagint, in verse 24, it says that Nebuchadnezzar heard them singing praises. So if it is son of God, they're now in this presence. They're walking around in fire with the Son of God. What else do you do but worship your Savior? Right? And they sing praises. The Apocrypha, which is another sacred text which the Catholic and Orthodox faith acknowledge and incorporate into their canon, which we do not. Um, there's your fiery furnace, another flannel graph image there of... Uh, Four men in the furnace. The Apocrypha talks about the song of the three holy children. And it goes through verses and verses and verses of these three men praising God. Saying, blessed art thou, and blessed is thy glorious and holy name. Blessed art thou in the temple of thine holy glory. Blessed art thou that beholdest the depths. Blessed art thou on the glorious throne of thy kingdom. Blessed art thou in the firmament of heaven. And they're just praising God. But then they do this miraculous thing, not miraculous, this is just natural thing, I think, in the presence of God, where they go from blessing him to they go to places of intercession. 
So now it's not about blessing God, but they're like, wait, we're in the presence of God. This here is a nation. His people are in captivity. Let us offer prayers of intercession on behalf of our people. And so these three guys, they don't go from this place of just like, you're great, amazing, you saved us, thank you. But then they go to this place of like, wow, we have a presence before the Most High God. Let us intercede on behalf of our people. And they go into this place and they say, O ye, O all ye workers of the Lord. And they go through and they just say everything about nature and all the things that God has created. All these things. They're saying, all you, bless, bless him, bless him. And they go through and they go through and they come down and they say, O ye children of men, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O Israel, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye priests of the Lord. O ye servants of the Lord. O ye spirits and souls of the righteous. O ye holy and humble men of heart. Bless the Lord. And then they pull out their original names. Ananias, Azariah, Mishael. Bless ye the Lord. Give thanks unto the Lord because he is gracious. For his mercy endureth forever. O all ye that worship the Lord, bless the God of gods. Praise him and give him thanks. For his mercy endureth forever. Even in the midst, in the midst of the fiery furnace, their eyes fixed on the Son of God. Praise. Nebuchadnezzar sees something's not right. Calls him out of the furnace. And here we see that Nebuchadnezzar will acknowledge the obvious. Their God saved him. But yet his pride keeps him from fully submitting. he promotes these three men to higher positions. And he even goes as far as saying all people will respect the God of Israel. He doesn't force anybody to worship him. He doesn't make Yahweh the God of his empire. But he offers respect. respect it doesn't change his heart right it's just an acknowledgement alright maybe you're an equal maybe you're you know somewhat real and what we see is that when we walk in obedience with God our Father we give Body, the life that he is. Right? We walk it out in obedience. When we walk out in obedience, we demonstrate, we become testimonies to others that he is a real and living God. Would you pray with me? Father God,
God, we thank you for these men. And not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but Father, all those who have gone before us and who are in our presence, who walk in obedience to their relationship with you. God, may our desire to be in relationship with you, to be servants of the Most High God, lead us to walk as living sacrifices, revealing the reality of a living God to those around us. Father, guide us and direct us. Fix our eyes upon you. 